Welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker. I'm a Korean adoptee and a mother based on Coast Salish land, otherwise known as the Seattle area. And I'm Robin Park, a Korean transracial adoptee and a therapist living on Tongva, Chumash, and Keech land, otherwise known as the Los Angeles area. Today, we are sitting here with Kit Myers, a Hong Kong adoptee, father of two, assistant professor of critical race and ethnic studies at UC Merced, which is on Yokute land, a friend and a fellow good troublemaker. I personally know Kit from our days as a camp counselor at adoptee camps back in 2006. So it's been a little while. Kit, thanks for being here. How are you doing right now? Hi, Robin and Ari. It's so good to join you today. I came in pretty late last night on a, on a flight visiting family and uh, got back at 2 a.m. and then had to wake up to you know, get the kids up for school. So a little tired, but glad to be here with you. I'm, I'm excited for the podcast. We always start off with all of our guests on the podcast with the same question. And that question is, what are the top two parenting themes you are meditating on these days? Besides the the universal themes of getting kids to eat their food and help clean up and for parents to cook and do laundry. I, I have uh, two daughters. They're uh, seven and five years old. And they're both, you know, mixed Hmong and Chinese American. They're both very silly. They love to have dance parties and, and tickle fest. They like to use their imagination. I'm trying to really support that because I love that about them. Another thing that I'm trying to cultivate is an adventurous spirit. I really enjoy the outdoors. And so I love to see them climbing rocks and trees and or on playgrounds and, and trying things that they haven't done, whether it's an activity or food or and just enjoying experiences, um, even if they're not great at it, just to get them to try things and enjoy the experience of that. Another part of this adventurous spirit is is kind of letting them learn themselves and, and not always intervening. Maybe the last thing is this theme of understanding of difference. Kia, my older daughter, is is at an age where she notices differences in others, in herself, and in our family. You know, we talk about what p- makes people unique and special and how people have multiple and changing identities. And we talk about racism, sexism, and capitalism, heteronormativity, disability, all these things. You know, of course, without all the jargon, but with the intent to not just say that there are differences and, and we should appreciate them in a, in a liberal, multicultural way, but beyond that, how do we think about how power is operating in conjunction with those differences and how does that shape experiences and identity and outcomes and those sort of things. And so even though these are kind of topics that are, you know, heavy or serious or, and and maybe beyond what you'd think a, you know, a five and seven year old would be interested in, I do feel like they understand baseline of how these things are operating either in our lives or in, in their lives or in other people's lives that's something that I've been thinking about and, and wanting to convey to them. Uh, a couple of days ago, I, I heard my older daughter asking the younger one, you know, what she does for the national anthem. And she says, the older one's like, you know, I, I don't stand for the national, the, the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning of you know, school, she, she says, because of the, you know, the racism that's happening. And it was pretty amazing to see how perceptive she is with some of the conversations we've had. So, Wow, Kit. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, I feel like there's this juxtaposition between these these different issues, like 
starting all of these really important conversations about all the isms and all the different power dynamics and the intersectionalities that you and your family and your, especially your daughters are, are learning and experiencing in their everyday lives. But with the silliness and with adventurousness and allowing them to just be in the joy of who they are. And also maybe where those things can come together. You know, there can be humor around intersectionalities and race issues. There can be an adventurousness or a a spirit of adventurousness around learning about people and their differences and bringing that all together in your parenting. It just sounds so powerful. And also the gateway to really developing these really honest and real conversations and a sense of closeness in your family. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the silliness part too, and the dance parties and tickle fest. Just love that you're cultivating so much of that spirit of play and adventure, um, but also alongside such a a really important baseline. Like you said, that you're helping them create a language or an understanding around. You know, the Korean adoptee community, which Nari and I find ourselves a part of, is pretty large and active. Um, and as we recently connected with you, you had mentioned that the Hong Kong community of adoptees is much smaller, you know, more in the hundreds versus the hundred thousands, mostly in their fifties and sixties, but that there is a very large and active group in the UK and and activities in the US. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about how growing up and now as an adult, what it's been like as a Hong Kong adoptee and has your experiences been, you know, similar or different from other BIPOC adoptees that you've met. And I know you've also done a lot of extensive research around transnational adoptees. So I'm just so curious about what that's been like for you. I grew up in Oregon and my family is white. We lived in a pretty rural town of 15,000 people. You know, we, we had to go to the neighboring town to, to see a movie. It, it was not diverse, to say the least. And growing up, I actually knew a handful of Korean adoptees. Actually, my, my brother's best friend, and my brother's he's, he's not adopted. One of his best friends is a Korean adoptee. And kind of ironically, one of my best friends, his brother, was a Korean ado- is a Korean adoptee. You know, I had a neighbor who had two younger boys who are twins, adopted from Korea. And when I was in college at University of Oregon for undergrad, there was there's another person who was in the Asian Pacific American Student Union who was also adopted. But I didn't really talk with those people, and, and then especially not about adoption. The first time I met a group of adoptees was actually at the camp that Nari mentioned. And so that was in 2006, summer 2006. And it, it really was the first time I felt a part of a community. I mean, you know, come, going to U of O, I interacted with a more diverse group of people. And that in itself was eye-opening and kind of scary, but unsettling, but became a really great experience for me because, you know, I, I just didn't have that growing up. And so summer camp was a totally different experience and it was in so many different ways just connecting with you know literally hundreds of other adoptees and and most of them were korean because the camp that we worked at used to be a korean heritage camp but then it got changed i can't remember if it was the year before we started nari or or maybe you started in 2000 the year before but but it changed and focused on issues of identity adoption and race because campers were so diverse. It wasn't just Korean adoptees attending the camp. And so you're traveling around for the summer, working with the staff of, I mean, it was close to 20 other adoptees. I think I was the only non-Korean adoptee on staff, but there was, you know, hundreds of campers and we traveled around. And so that was my first introduction to adoptee community. And then once I got into grad school, 
then, of course, I met other adoptee scholars, and, and most of whom uh, Korean adoptees as well. So, you know, Kim Park Nelson, Jennifer Kwon Dobbs, Kim McKee, and, and Jaron Kim, and others. And they've been really influential in helping me understand, also validating intellectual work that I'm trying to do. It's funny because I don't talk about myself t- too much. And so many people thought I was adopted for, from Korea for a long time. And, and so it, it just came out one of these conferences or academic settings where they're like, you're like, what? You're not, you're not adopted from Korea? I, I did certainly feel connected to that community. You know, I try to mention that I'm adopted from Hong Kong and my Chinese identity more upfront now. My research in many ways fits within the Ethnic Studies Project. I'm, I'm part of the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies Program here at UC Merced. And my research talks about race and, and family and kinship. But it's also isn't legible in some ways because it doesn't neatly fit into the critical ethnic studies mold where critiques of whiteness, typically less nuanced. That group of scholars has really helped me feel at home in my work and feel, again, you know, validated in, in what I'm trying to do. Meeting other Hong Kong adoptees was something that happened very late around, I want to say 2000, maybe 11 or 10 is when I got connected with a group and we ended up meeting in Berkeley. And it was a group of some people from the UK and then others from the US. And that was a wonderful experience. A kind of a larger group ended up meeting in Hong Kong for everybody traveling from the UK or parts of Europe or a couple of people lived in Hong Kong and then of course the United States. And so there's folks from all over the place and we got together, there's about 33 people. And that was just a really another powerful experience for me because there was this additional connection of you know being in Hong Kong, some of them being in the same orphanage as me maybe at different times, but, you know, having that similar experience. It is generally an older group. Most of them were born in the late 50s and the early 60s. And it's really quite amazing how they found each other, mostly through the internet, but also through a study that was done in the UK. There are similarities in sort of drawing from Korean adoptees and and how the Hong Kong adoptee group, uh, you know, how they get together and how they share experiences and formed a, a kind of adoptee kinship. But I would say in the current moment that, you know, the group is... You know, it's active socially, creating friendships and, and those sort of connections, but it's, it's less active politically. You know, I think a lot of them spent many years alienated or isolated. And, and so you know, their focus has been more like engaging in these connections that they didn't have. There, there hasn't been as much political activity. And so the Korean adoptee community is kind of at the foreground. Um, of course, there's other young Chinese adoptees and other Black and Native uh, adoptees who are doing really, you know, amazing work and politically active, and and so, you know, I looked in that direction to kind of fulfill that part of myself. But but it has been pretty amazing to connect with this group. I am so curious too, knowing that you have a mixed ethnic Asian American family. Just kind of wondering how you're bringing elements of your own ancestral history and cultural knowledge into your daughter's lives. Sometimes I think that as adoptees, if we are partnered with somebody who is somewhat connected to their cultural knowledge and their ancestral lands or their ancestral cultures um, and family, and maybe have a large um, extended family network, that trying to pass on cultural knowledge and ancestral knowledge can be a challenge. And it can even be eclipsed sometimes by our partners' families. And just wondering about if you wouldn't mind sharing with us how you're honoring all parts of 
your daughter's identities and how you're blending and melding and integrating your cultural history with your partners. And um, if this has been a struggle or if it's been more of an organic process and just kind of where you're at with your family right now in that area. I started identifying as a Hong Kong adoptee because before I, I mostly identified as an Asian American adoptee. In part because I didn't know of any other Hong Kong adoptees, so it didn't feel like I was there was this community and that I was a part of it. I felt like again, you know, I'd met a bunch of other Korean adoptees, I'd met other Asian adoptees or Asian American adoptees, and even you know at that point had met Shannon Gibney and other folks, but again, nobody from from Hong Kong. So growing up, I didn't have the opportunity to learn about Chinese culture or anything, and and I think like most or not most, but many adoptees who are adopted transracially or transnationally have mixed feelings about their culture, their birth culture or heritage, because they, you know, want, maybe one aren't really interested or don't think they should be interested or think that it could hurt their parents' feelings if they show interest or think that it will make them, you know, stand out and be more different because um, they wouldn't be as assimilated, you know, quote unquote assimilated. And so I think for me, it was kind of all of those things. Even to this day, I, I don't know much about Chinese culture. So, so yeah, as I said, it's something I'm still learning how to do and not knowing and missing out on that in my own experience. That has kind of led us to emphasize the Hmong aspect of their identities a little bit more. My partner, you know, my wife, uh, she has a strong connection to it through her language and and her parents. Obviously, you know, they, they practice a lot of the ancestral aspects of the the culture. They have different rituals that they do. You know, my kids just asked why why they don't have a Chinese name because their first name is is a Hmong name, and then their middle names are. Marie Vang and Gail Vang. And so the Vang is is the last name of Ma. And then the first part of their middle names are are the middle names of, of my adoptive mom and my adoptive grandmother. And then their last name is Myers. And you know, the, the last name is we thought about Vang, but then as being their last name, but but I kind of did like the idea of having this white sounding name as their as their last name because you know they have a Hmong first name and then a white last name. And even though they're not adopted, they, you know, have that connection to adoption. I do like the idea of, you know, disrupting assumptions about names and identities and, and, and those sort of things. And so I didn't really have a desire to have a Chinese name for them, but it's something that they asked about just probably last week. You know, we asked, you know, is that something that you'd want? And they said, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's something that just came up and that we're probably going to need to talk about a little bit more in terms of choosing a name for them or having them choose their own name. We do a small celebration or, or we'll celebrate with another family in the past uh, for Lunar New Year's. That's kind of the extent of Chinese aspect of their and my identity. But as I said, I think it's, they know that they're mixed, that, you know, they have this mixed identity and I think they, they're proud of it and they want to learn more. I still need to get there myself and then help that process along. I think you speak to so much of our experiences alongside theirs that it's always a work in progress. Um, I love that there was a recent conversation and question about this and that 
you can now go back and have deeper conversations or really at this age and stage in their life, collaboratively talk more about this. Because I just think that that speaks to just our experiences of how, especially with names, how complex it is. And, and also, just like you said, ways in which there are opportunities to disrupt uh, you know, assumptions, especially around names. We'll be so curious to hear kind of as the evolution of names continues in your your family, what that looks like for all of you. But, you know, I want to also ask a little bit more around some experiences you've had with your wife. I know a fun fact that we learned was that in 2013, you went back to Hong Kong on a, a trip kind of post-graduation in Asia that you stopped in Hong Kong. And, you know, just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more about that experience of how it felt being back in the motherland and, you know, just if there's been any birth search work or the ways in which you connected with the land and the people. And then also, is it something as your daughters get older that I think a question that we hear a lot amongst adoptees and and raising children is when, you know, they want to bring their children back to their countries of, of birth and connect them with their ancestral roots. So just wondering about your experiences when you went back. You know, it was such a memorable trip just after I finished my PhD. So we went to China, Hong Kong for me to see, you know, see Hong Kong for the first time and do some route tracing and then Thailand for for Ma to do some research and then Japan to visit some friends from grad school. And, you know, the visit to China was actually with uh, Holt and Steve Cobb asked me to, if I wanted to join the tail end of their their homeland tour that they do with, you know, adapt and adoptive families. And it involved a camp like the one that you know, I had mentioned before, but it was in China. It was outside of Beijing. So it didn't quite mimic the ones that we had worked at Nari because the whole adoptive family was there, but it was the impetus for the trip. You know, the whole trip was amazing. The Hong Kong part was a bit disorganized. I had some paperwork or I shouldn't say some because, you know, a lot of adoptees don't have any. So I, I think I have relative to a lot of people, a lot of other adoptees, I had a lot of paperwork. And one of the things uh, being my birth certificate and, and some adoption records, in part because um, you know I was adopted when I was three and a half. I don't think I was relinquished right away. And so I have some of these records. I don't know why I didn't do some more work on the front end, but I didn't reach out to anyone in Hong Kong until we actually got there. And I thought, oh, maybe I should actually call, you know, some people to <laughs> try to set up appointments or something. But, you know, I sent an email to the International Social Services at Hong Kong and Paul and Cook, which I don't remember how I knew these places, but it was probably in my paperwork. And so I reached out to them and and I didn't hear back right away. And so we just decided to try to find uh, Paul and Cook, which was one of the, the four places that I stayed at. I was kind of moved around before I was adopted. And so this was the last place I stayed at. And it's on Google Maps, but you know, 2013 is not too far removed from you know MapQuest and lesser <laughs> quality mapping experiences. It was daunting to try to find this place. And luckily, there's this nice person who helped point us in the right direction. And then we kind of stumbled upon it, and we're looking at it from the outside. And so that was really cool to see it from the outside and, and know that it matched some of the pictures I had, which is another thing that I'm lucky to have that a lot of other adoptees don't have, which is a small album of pictures. And they have uh, some Chinese writing on the back, which, again, you know, I, again, I never really thought to ask any of my friends in college to translate. And so that kind of happened last minute. 
it. And so I found out some of the locations that the pictures were taken. But, you know, again, I emailed them and I didn't hear anything back. And, and so from, from the orphanage, but I did hear back from I, ISS Hong Kong. And so I talked to a social worker there and we talked about how we could start doing the retracing process through the social welfare department there and, and immigration and um, and luckily, I had a friend who you know was born and raised in Hong Kong. He was really interested in trying to help me out. And so on the last day there, we actually went back to the orphanage because he said it also happened to be a museum where there's a small museum attached to it. And it's still a daycare educational sort of institution. So it does it's, it has multiple functions now, including temporary care. Anyway, there's a kind of museum attached to it. So we go there because that's public. And then he, being a little bit bolder, goes into the office and just starts asking them, hey, you know, my friend's here and he sent you an email. Did you receive it? And they said, you know, actually, you know, we did receive it and we're trying to get some information. And they had apparently, you know, reached out to one of the social workers who had worked there when I was, you know, stayed there. And and so they came there and then we we got to sit down and talk a little bit about the little memories that I had and, and show them some of the pictures that I had. The woman had some of her own pictures that I hadn't seen. And so that was really special. It was surreal, obviously, to connect with you know this physical person from my past, even if I didn't remember them. That kind of ended the first trip because I decided against searching for my birth mother at, at the physical address that was on the birth certificate because there's an address that her name is on it. So I have her name and then her address. But you know, I was advised that it could be better to have a, a mediator. So I decided to try to go through the more formal route first. Then the next trip in 2015, which was kind of a research trip, but combined with this large gathering of other Hong Kong adoptees, that same friend and I, we did go to the address in a neighborhood that had, you know, a bunch of low rises. I put, you know, a bunch of letters in, in all of, with my story and my picture in all the mailboxes that were there. And we, we knocked on some doors but, you know, we didn't find any information. My friend did, however, you know, he looked into some public records and found that the person who owned the building or, or that flat was my grandpa. And he, well, he speculated it was my grandpa. But then we confirmed through multiple other records that he found, like his death record and my birth mother's marriage certificate, that we confirmed that he was indeed, you know, my grandpa. And then there's the grandmother who got the property when he died. And then there's an uncle who's named on the death certificate. I have a bunch of names, but I don't have any contact with anybody. So I'm kind of stuck there right now. Ma did a, you know, she bought me a 23andMe uh, kit a couple, I don't know if it's been two years already, but a while ago. And I had thought about it, but I just never moved on it. And so she she got it for me and, and said, you know, if it's something I wanted to do, I could do it when I was ready. And so I did it and a first cousin showed up but I haven't heard anything back from that person. And so Facebook messaged a bunch of Angus Chans, that's his name, and, and there's hundreds of Angus Chans in Hong Kong. I'm interested in connecting with my, my birth family. It's certainly something that I didn't, my perspective has changed on that because when I was younger, kind of similar to the, the cultural thing, not wanting to upset my parents, it was the similar sort of feeling about not wanting to search for my birth family because I thought it would, you know, make my parents upset or make them feel as if I didn't love them or appreciate them. You know, one thing that really stuck out with me is, you know, at some point, and I really don't remember when, but I learned that fetal cells travel from the placenta 
and are absorbed into the mother's tissue. You know, this is apparently called fetal microchimerism, you know, the small scale combining of two beings. It, it just made me feel really different about that connection. You know, before it was curiosity, but then after learning this, you know, I really felt like we are connected in this not just birthing way, but in this kind of lifelong way. Without going into too much detail, you know, Ma had postnatal complications with both kids. Her second one was life-threatening. So that experience and the experience of becoming a parent, you know, made me want to try to make that connection. In terms of connecting, you know, with the land and the people, it was a beautiful feeling being in a sea of other Asian people in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is also just a really beautiful place. It, there's so much greenery. I imagine it to be a big city, which which it is. I mean, it's tons of people, but it's also just really beautiful. The other aspect, though, is you know, there's these gigantic malls, which you know was really surreal. Two of these gigantic malls were just blocks away from the orphanage that I mentioned, and so that you know juxtaposition was a little bit jarring. But of course, you know that exists all over the world, and so. But I, I would say by the second time that I went in 2015, it did feel much more like home. And I think in part because, you know, I was there with other Hong Kong adoptees and we went to other orphanage sites that, you know, the orphanages weren't there anymore, but we went to where they were and, you know, people had memories. Some of them were opted, adopted at a very old age, um, so they had memories of it. And so it was very, you know, emotional to be there with a, a large group doing that. And so that connection was much stronger the second time I went. Thank you, Kit. You covered so much ground. I mean, sometimes birth searches are talked about as like you start them and then they stop or you start and then you get a reunion and that's it, you know, but it really is. I mean, just the way you so beautifully described it is a transforming experience over time and an ever evolving experience and what you choose and how quickly and how like if you press on the gas or if you put on the brakes, you know, it's all this big process. I just imagine that along this journey, there's just been so much intellectual development and traversing that you've done um, that has connected so deeply to personal reflection on your life and on your relationships. And you have mentioned that both you and Ma have been back on these trips to, in part to do research. Your decision to become a professor is, you know, of critical race theory and ethnic studies in particular is a really unique journey and a really unique decision. On the one hand, as an adoptee, a fellow adoptee, it makes so much sense because we are mired in these really intense experiences from day one. If we are growing up, especially, you know, with parents who aren't of our race and, and living in this environment, this, you know, where so much of our lives can be defined and constrained and so much pain and loss around issues of race, um, even in the United States and globally as well. I just imagine that along this journey, there's just been so much intellectual development and traversing that you've done that has connected so deeply to personal reflection on your life and on your relationships. And how would you describe and would you mind sharing just a little bit more about how being an adoptee has influenced your path 
and, you know, how your perspective on your work and on the fields have maybe changed over time based on your experiences and also especially now that you're a parent. My career path was uh, never headed in this direction. For the very longest time, I wanted to be a PE teacher because I thought it was, this is like the easiest job in the world. You know, I love sports and it would, you know, it would not be hard and I could just, you know, really enjoy life, you know, a bunch of different ways. Um, uh, and then the next, you know, dream was to be a sports writer or, you know, sports reporter because I, I yeah, I, I love sports. And so I was a journalism major at U, U of O, but then I took an ethnic studies class and I really connected with the readings and the material and so I added that major. And even though I wasn't good at reading or writing, and I'm still really not great at either. But of course, you know, I love the material and I love teaching the material. Toward end of my time at U of O, I wrote three papers on adoption. And, and so I ended up going to grad school for trying to kind of expand on that research. You know, in general, my research has shifted a little bit, but it focuses on what I call the, the violence of love and transracial and transnational adoption. And specifically, in the adoption of Asian, Black, and Native American children in the United States. You know, the main questions I'm examining are how, you know, how has love been imagined and practiced at different levels of the birth and adoptive families, adoption agencies, and the government? And second, how has violence been attached to adoption before, during, after, and outside of that process. My argument at its base is that despite the ways that love operates in adoption, the act of adoption and the industry of adoption are inherently violent in ways that can't, you know, cannot be resolved. And so the follow-up to the question is how do we engage violence, you know, the symbolic violence, structural violence, and traumatic violence in ways that don't or doesn't compound or, or exacerbate, exacerbate it. My work, while it attempts, it attempts to acknowledge the personal level, because you know the personal, the personal is political. In my teaching and in my research, I try to focus on the on the macro scale. You know, what are the conditions and contexts that enable for violence to exist or be reproduced in the first place? And you know, sometimes individuals are at fault, but there is a certain degree in which individuals are operating within set guides and rules that shape the way that they think or the way that they act. You know, one example is that adoptive parents think that they're doing something, doing the best for their children when they take them to culture camp, for example, or adoption agencies think that they're doing the best in providing them. But, you know, one of my arguments is that culture camp while imagined and, and practiced as a loving act, reproduces harms because of the ways that birth families often not discussed or how birth culture is reduced to food or clothing and a few phrases or songs. And so that has always been kind of like looking at both the personal or the, the micro, but then always expanding out to think about more institutional and structural things. And so, you know, parenting has made me think about my relationship you know, with my kids and, you know, other student experiences and how they are experiencing schooling and how I'm trying to, you know, foster a certain learning environment for them, whether they be children of parents who are trying to like, navigate the pandemic or, you know, siblings of younger siblings or whether they be parents themselves. And so I think, you know, parenting has influenced my teaching more than has influenced my research and how I go about making sure that we you know, are caring for, for people in a more holistic way.
I'm so curious about what it's been like then for you as a BIPOC adoptee parent, you know, with the intersectionalities of your research, but also just if there's been some pivotal moments, you know, or shifts that you've noticed as your daughters have, you know, gone from birth to now five and seven, also in a pandemic and very much still kind of trying to figure out how to navigate being a parent in a pandemic. But, you know, have there been moments, because we hear from other adoptee parents that really just struck you or stood out to you, or, or you really just kind of embodied a moment of, wow, this is such a unique experience of being a parent, but also being an adoptee parent. I mean, especially with Trump and with you know, COVID and all the anti-Asian racism, it, it's hard not to pick up on some of the, the stuff at school, especially for my older daughter. And, you know, she would come home and the younger daughter kind of learned it too. And they'd have like these little chants about Trump and whatnot. And, you know, I dislike the man as much as a lot of people, but, but ironically, I, you know, I, I try to teach them about love. And, you know, there's this Franz Fanon quote in which uh, he says, uh, today, I believe in the possibility of a love. And that is why I, I endeavor to trace its imperfections, its perversions. It's not just to say like, again, liberal multicultural way that we embrace difference because, you know, rainbows are awesome, but to, you know, love people because, because we don't know where they're coming from. There's people out there that are so angry right now, and anger is good, right? And Bell Hooks, who just recently passed us, you know, and many others taught us that. But I do want there to be a balance and to know the value of both. And so, you know, that's something that I think in this particular moment, I'm trying to try to find a balance for that. And then the other part about, you know, being Asian American and really just trying to teach them to be proud of who they are because they, I think they are starting to realize that as a part of their identity. And it's something that I certainly was not comfortable with that aspect of my identity. And so I definitely don't want them to feel that as a parent. It's something I'm really cognizant because my mom, I guess more so than my dad, who, who didn't really have as many comments about it, but my mom would say, you know, you're special just the way you are. But it was in a very sort of generic way. It's not like you are special because you're Asian American and because you have this history. It was more like, you know, everyone is special and you're special and you're adopted and you're special. But but there was, you know, pieces from that lesson that I felt were missing that it didn't actually make me feel proud necessarily to be Asian American. You know, there was no handbook to be an adopted parent. And some of the advice they got was really crappy advice. And so it's not that I'm blaming parents, but it's, it's the, you know, the situation that um, I kind of go back to of it being more structural and institutional, you know, how did we get here and less about sort of individual choices. I mean, and it's not to release responsibility from individuals, but it's to think again, more, more broadly and holistically. And so, yeah, as a parent, I'm, I'm really thinking about these things and how do we cultivate their, their identity and, and allow it to change on their own terms, as opposed to just us kind of saying that this is who you are and you should be proud of this and uh, letting them kind of have choices in those and letting it, it change um, in the way that identity does change. Yeah, thank you, Kit. Yeah, I feel like the first part of what you what you were saying about just holding the both and, I think that is what it means to be an adoptee, a transracial one, especially that love is weaponized all the time, all around us. What you were saying that love and violence come together hand in hand, 
both can exist individually and also very much melded together and integrated and kind of sussing out what that means for us. And then how do we want to pass on those messages to our children? Because we don't necessarily want to like simplify or to uncomplicate something that is very complicated and trusting that our children do have the ability to understand what we're talking about and that we're transmitting so much more than our words. So I just really appreciate that you're bringing so much of your experience into your daughter's lives, both explicitly and, you know, implicitly. And then also what you were saying about, you know, this Asian American identity and, you know, how we are, we're evolving that identity and we're changing with that and that we are allowing, you know, this next generation to lead us at a certain point, you know, that we get to impart all of what we have learned and what we have helped shape, but then hopefully they'll, they'll carry it forward into something new and something better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so thank you for that. As we're, we're sort of kind of coming more to a close and, you know, both Robin and I are really interested to know just with your depth and breadth of knowledge and your networks and, and all that you've read and all that you have written and contributed to what you want other BIPOC adoptee parents to know or have access to. What resources do you think are essential or especially good for people to know about, to read or to absorb into their lives, especially as parents, both from an ethnic studies perspective and also just as a fellow BIPOC adoptee parent perspective. You know, parenting is so difficult, whether you're partnered or co-parenting or single parent, it's not an easy thing to do. I'm just really ecstatic that you've created this podcast. And so, you know, other people, people can share their experiences and other people can sort of learn from, from this community. And I think your, you know, your podcast and your listeners are already familiar with the, the Parenting as Adoptives book. But, you know, if you're a parent who's, who's lost a child, you know, which is not my experience, but I know it's more common than, than most people imagine. Gauka Leah Yang and Shannon Gibney's edited volume, What God is Honored Here, is a super powerful book has at least a couple adoptee stories and experiences in it. You know, for the, those listeners who are in college or thinking about college, you know, I really, of course, encourage you to take an ethnic studies or a feminist studies course or, you know, major in those areas. And it's, it's where I started. And, and I think it's, it really helped me think at a deeper level in both my, you know, in my parenting, but in all levels of sort of how to build relationships and, think about each other and our relationship with the land and, you know, non-human animals. And then maybe lastly, and it's I could, maybe I'm dating myself, but um, uh, Twitter, you know, I feel like is a, is a really good, great way to, there's a lot of great conversations on all topics that are really important. Of course, social media has its drawbacks, but it's a great way to find information, resources, and, and have conversations. There's a adaptive Twitterverse out there. And so I've been slowly sort of finding cool people who have great things to say and are doing wonderful things. And so I think that's a really useful resource. Thank you for sharing some of your recommendations, but also just pieces that have been really insightful and informative for you. Um, We're so excited that we will be in a future episode hosting Shannon Gibney as well and and speaking to that piece that you mentioned um, around different types of pregnancy loss and infant loss. And, And so we're so honored to be just in connection with so many different folks and and also just the resources that you mentioned are so important. And again, we're going to drop those, you know, and link those for those that are listening and, and definitely 
follow Kit in the Twitterverse. Um, we'll put his handle on there as well. You know, thank you again for just sharing so much personally, professionally, just what it's been like for you navigating parenthood as an adoptee, as a person of color. And, you know, one final question that we always close with and love to ask our guests is, you know, what other labors of love besides parenting in a pandemic are you working on or enjoying or doing? You know, I've been active with a group of faculty across the University of California system. We're trying to get cops off campus. I mean, really police abolition in general, but starting with campuses. And and so that's, you know, been both uh, energizing and, you know, draining in, in many ways, but it's something I'm passionate about. And we created Abolition May last spring. And so that's, you know, something if you if you go on Twitter and, and type in uh, hashtag Abolition May, you'll see a, a lot of stuff that happened in which there's a rolling month of actions at more than 60 colleges and universities across Turtle Island. And so we're trying to figure out how to make this vision a reality. We, we just talked with someone from the Black Organizing Project in Oakland, which was able to get cops out of the Oakland Unified School District. And I, I know that there's other examples out there. And so it's been difficult organizing during the pandemic, but, but it's been exciting to sort of learn of these other models and, and produce, you know, a hope of a different way of, you know, again, caring for, for other people. I mean, this is, parenting is all about care and, you know, policing, I feel is, you know, the opposite of care. So what are other systems that we can create to provide that? Such powerful and timely work and so needed. And I imagine just such an incredible way to come together across race, across ethnic groups, you know, across just so many intersectionalities to come together for that, to create a safer space for students and to, you know, create the culture that you want, you know, in, you know, the areas that you're able to have an impact on. So that sounds amazing. And if there's ways outside of Twitter that people can contribute to that, that movement, We'd also love to know that as well. And we will post that. Thank you again for tuning in to the Labor of Love podcast. Please like us, share us, and follow us on Instagram at Labor of Love podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify and leave us a review if you feel moved to do so. And please donate to our Labor of Love on Venmo at Labor of Love podcast if you have some extra resources and feel moved to support our work. 